Well, you please turn with me to your, in your Bibles to Acts 13, verses 4 to 13. Acts 13, verses 4 to 13. And it reads this. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went out to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking... Then the proconsul believed when he saw that when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Holy Trinity, Chicago. Good to see all of you. Yeah, I'm really sad that we can't be together. And yes, it's very strange now to be uh, preaching over Zoom, but actually it's kind of fun to be able to see some of your faces today. There's a really fun little children's book called Poppleton. It's easy for me to pull these off my shelf when I'm just preaching from my library. Yes, I do have some children's books still. He's a simple little pig with friends like uh, Cherry Sue, and he loves the simple pleasures of life. In one of the stories, he tells about how he likes to read so much that he every Monday is library day, and he goes to the library, and he unpacks his backpack, and he sits there all day and talks just about his love for the rhythms of reading, and he, he uh, speaks of how undeterred he is. One little story he speaks of how he presses on to read of these adventures. If Cherry Sue says to him that uh, she wants him to have tea on a Monday, he says, sorry, Monday is library day. If there's a parade on Monday, Poppleton says, too bad. Monday is library day and tells of him reading his book at the table. He said he loves to choose an adventure from the shelves. And he buries his head in the adventure book and he pulls out some tissue for the sad parts. He pulls out some lip balm for the dry parts and he pulls out his pocket watch for the slow parts, but he loves his adventure. And I say all that to say that reading the book of Acts is like this adventure that we get to enter into. And in our text today, we focus on what might be called the basics of the Christian Mission. If you read the uh, business books, they often talk of this concept of mission drift. That is the idea that 
organizations start out with one particular purpose and then they begin to drift from that purpose. And one of the claims of business books is that in order to stay true to your mission, it helps to go back to the founding of the mission itself. One of the books I read last year is called The Founder's Mentality, and it talks about this drift that often happens in organizations and then says that it's very important to return to the central founding of the mission itself. And that's what we're going to do today, because although the church was founded by the Lord Jesus Christ, although Jesus empowered the disciples to move forward on the mission, it's actually right here in the book of Acts at chapter 13 that we see the gospel begin to move out from the church in Antioch. All I want to do today is is, uh, make one simple claim, which is this, that God calls his church to an adventure, but it is a spirit-empowered, word-saturated adventure that inevitably encounters opposition. And that's what we're going to see in the text. I'm just going to give you three questions for today. Question one is in verses four and five, which is, what are the features of this estimate mission that we are going to see in this text? Two is, that's verses four and five. The second set of questions come from verses six to eight, and it's, what should we expect when this, when the New Testament mission moves forward? And then how do we respond to those challenges is what we see in verses nine to 13. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me and we will dive into our text via Zoom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to an adventure. And uh, who would have known last week that we would have to be back to together virtually? Who would have known a year ago, 54 weeks ago, Lord, that we would be displaced from gathering together? And yet on this Sunday, We thank you for the power of your word, for the power of your spirit, that you have bound us together. And more than that, you've given us a great and exalted calling to be part of an adventure. We thank you for this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Keep your Bibles open, if you will, to Acts chapter 13. And uh, we will be looking at this text together. The last time that we met, the three people that are introduced in this text was in verses one to three, that was about three weeks ago for us as a church, in what we looked at as the prayer meeting that changed the world. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, we are recorded as being sent out, look at chapter two, sorry, verse two of chapter 13, it says, of Saul and Barnabas, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to do. Then after praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So verses four and five mention a a few. I'll just mention three features of what the New Testament mission looks like in verses four and five. First of all, the New Testament mission is prompted and inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing could be plainer from the uh, opening of Verse four, look at what it says in those first eight words or so. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there came to Cyprus. I love that phrase because this is God's hand moving them out. This is God's work moving them out. In other words, 
John Mott says this, who was a, a great missions evangelist at the uh, turn of the last century. He says that the evangelization of the world is not man's enterprise, but God's. He goes on to say, Christ at the right hand of God is the leader of the missionary movement. And with him resides all power in heaven and on earth. Faith is a victory that overcomes the world. What he's saying is that the mission that we get to be a part of is not something that we are empowered on by our own strength, but it is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, in our values, we call this idea of depending on the Holy Spirit, the irony of weakness. And I'm going to read a little bit from that, that value. And it's important, I think, that we grasp this because it's so easy to feel defeated by the weakness of the church. The world places a high value on strength and Holy Trinity Church values and seeks to live in weakness. Why? Because when we are weak, we are actually strong. Second Corinthians 12.9 quotes Paul, who's at the center of this text who says uh, that God told him, my grace is for sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is divinely intended for us by God. In uh, our, this value we write, so we value dependence on the spirit rather than dependence on self. We value prayer, which is the opposite of pride and self-sufficiency. And though we do not seek out suffering, we know that it is a part of gospel life. So gospel mission is empowered by and led by the spirit. That's feature number one of the New Testament mission that we see here. The second feature that I want to bring to your attention is this concept of geographic expansion. Pastor Curtin, I like saying that, Pastor Sully Curtin, last week uh, he quoted Abraham Kuyper, or at least referenced him in one of his most famous uh, quotes in a ringing proclamation last week, Sully said this, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And what happens here is that the mission expands geographically. Yes, it's empowered by the Spirit, but because the good news of the gospel belongs to all people. It has to move on. And it tells us here that uh, verse four, that they went down to Seleucia, which is about five miles north of the Orontes River. It's a port city. And then they sail about 130 miles to Cyprus, the port city of Cyprus. Uh, some scholars have said that Cyprus would be regarded by us or was regarded as what we kind of consider what Hawaii is like, or the Bahamas. So it was, it was a sunny place, a place that people would like to take their leisure, but it was also a needy place, being at the crossroads of the Mediterranean. Interestingly, and some of you may know this, this is Barnabas's hometown, or Barnabas's home island. So when they set out, Paul, and Barnabas, and John Mark, Somewhere in the conversation, either God directs them to go first to his hometown or Barnabas says, let's go tell my friends about the gospel. And so holding to the principle in Romans 1.16, they go to the synagogue so that they might preach first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And then they cross the island from the east to west, 
from Salamis to Paphos, which is about a 90-mile journey to Salamis, which is the largest city of the island. And the simple point is this, that the gospel, because it is the good news for all people, must grow over every square inch. Picture the geography, friends of the neighborhood around you. Picture the apartment buildings that are next door. Picture Western Avenue that divides Chicago East and West. Picture all the way up to Rogers Park and all the way down to South Holland and all the way over to Oak Park. Every inch of the magnificent mile, every inch of this globe is the Lord's and the gospel must continue to grow. So what are the features of New Testament mission? It is spirit-led and directed. It is geographically expanded. That's what we see in the text. And third, it is radically word-centered. What it says here is that as they begin to go into the Jews and to the synagogues, what did they do? They And this is so simple and obvious for us, but they proclaimed the word of God. There are people in our culture today within the broader Christian movement who want to separate the spirit from the word. There are those who want to say, we have the word of God, they have the spirit of God, or those who say, we have the spirit, but they have the word. That is a division that is foreign to the New Testament. The New Testament mission is one of spirit and word. It's almost as if you might say, uh, that somebody is breathing the words with their breath, but they're also speaking words as well. Those two go together. The original call of the disciples at the beginning of this book is to be witnesses, that is to speak. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that the word of God is to be central to the mission of God? And the answer is very simple. It's that the word of God is how salvation comes. The, the one who's called Saul in this text and then also called Paul, beginning in verse 9, will become the greatest apostolic writer of the word of God in what is now known as the New Testament. And in his magisterial book, Romans, he records the necessity of the preached word of God. Verse 13 of Romans 10 says this. For everyone who calls upon the, the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he pleads saying, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without what? Without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he he breaks forth with praise and says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who Preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, at the, as a church in the center of the city, as a church scattered throughout the neighborhoods, let us keep the life-giving word of God central. Brothers and sisters, let us, as David Pickens just said, saturate our minds and our hearts with the word of God in this season. So, what, is the, what are the features of the New Testament mission? It's, it's spirit-directed. God has a passion for the expansion of his word over every inch of all the city for his glory, and it's radically committed to the word. If those are the features, word and spirit and pervasive expansion, what's to be expected? 
And the answer is pretty clear in the text that you should expect both interest in the word and distraction from the word, or even more opposition to the word. Take a look at verse six says, and it's remarkable how sort of unfruitful they are. Throughout their whole island, there's really only one story of them having sort of success in preaching to someone. Verse six, it says that they had gone throughout the whole island as far as Paphos, and they came to two people. One is a magician, a quote-unquote magician, and the other one is called a proconsul. A proconsul would be uh, actually a military or a governmental leader, essentially a political ruler. As Rome continued to grow, they had to divide it up into various provinces, and a, a proconsul was the ruler of a particular area. So it's very likely that Sergius Paulus in this passage is actually the ruler who's governing over the island of Cyprus here. So you have these two individuals. They came on a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name is Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, interesting description here, a man of intelligence. Luke is giving a little jab here to say those who respond well to the word of God, actually are intelligent people who summons Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them in seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. What do you have here? You have basically two responses to the gospel. The first one is Sergius Paulus, who is interested in hearing the word of God. And the second one is of this musician, this magician, almost said musician, who is wanting to, to distract from the message itself. In one sense, you could think of the imagery of Jesus in the parable of the soils. Jesus is very clear, for instance, in Mark chapter four, that as the word goes out, some of the seed will fall on the path and some of the seed will fall on rocky ground and some of the seed will fall on thorny ground and the thorns will choke it up out and yield no grain but mark 4 8 says this and yet other seeds fell onto good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30 fold and 60 fold and 100 fold what Luke is showing us here is, is that even while the, the mission might be an adventure that is spirit directed and founded on the word, it will also encounter both opposition and acceptance at the same time. And the forms of opposition today are really as varied as the people groups who are alive today. If you converse with someone who is university educated, they may have been trained that the Bible is full of errors and does not contain the truth. Even a committed Muslim will tell you that while Jesus is, in their tradition, a prophet, not on the level of Muhammad, but a prophet nonetheless, they will deny that he rose from the dead and the new testament pictures as the mission goes forth that it goes forth within the arena of a spiritual battle that some will turn away from you and i'll just say this if there is a cost as we know 
to taking up the cross of Christ. And when you commit to him, as we see in this passage, when you speak of his power, when you speak of his salvation, that some will walk away. I'm intrigued by this little phrase here that it says that the proconsul wanted to turn him away from the faith. It's interesting to me just the, the sort of instrumentality of that, that it recognizes, the text recognizes that people will, a roommate, say, or a boyfriend, a colleague, a philosophy, a book will have hostility towards the faith. That is to be expected. Those challenges are to be expected today. And there are many today who speak of great challenges against the faith, and yet the gospel will continue to move forward. Finally, let me just show you after the features here and what's to be expected in terms of challenges. Let me just show you the, the dramatic response of the Apostle Paul and how the mission continues to move forward. And before I do, you know, sometimes there's a label when you see something on, a, on television or on a screen and it says, Please do not try this at home. This was tested in a safe place and uh, by certified professionals. I'd say that about the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure that this is the best thing for you to try the next time you're standing at the water cooler with uh, a colleague. But Saul, who is also called Paul, this is, the, this is the last time that he's called Saul in this book, now that this other name of Paul begins to be used. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. There are ways in which we are like Paul in this passage in ways that we really are not. He looked intently at him. Can you imagine that stare boring into his eyes? And he said, you son of the devil, that is, you son of the slanderer, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the paths, the straight paths of the Lord? Do you sense the intensity here? Do you sense the gravity and how it seems that as if everything is at stake in this moment? Oh, for this weight. Oh, for this urgency. Oh, for this sense of gravity that Paul has here. And then he says, and now behold, verse 11, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And in the same way that Paul was blinded in Acts chapter 9. He says, you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And then it says, immediately mist and darkness fell on him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And essentially what happened is that through the, the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, the man's physical life began to manifest his internal spiritual life. That his, that is his inability to see spiritually then became a physical dimension of his life as a kind of curse from the hand of the apostle Paul. Verse 12, after, after uh, verse 11 says, immediately mist and darkness fell about uh, upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You have belief. And this is what Luke has been driving towards, is that in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the distraction, when the word comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, there are some who will cling to the word 
and believe. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage in the book of Acts, says, this doesn't even sound Christian, <laughs> what Paul said. There's some ways it sounds like some of the preachers that we hear today. I'm just going to divide this into two parts here and, and, and mention in what ways might we be like the Apostle Paul? And in what ways is the Apostle Paul different from us? It's important to keep in mind that the book of Acts is actually a descriptive book of what has happened, written in order to inspire us and to challenge us to the mission adventure that God calls us to. But it is not prescriptive. That means that, that not everything that happens in the book is guaranteed to happen, say, for us. So there are ways in which we are like Paul, but there are other ways that we are not like Paul. And I'm just going to mention a couple of those. We're like him in the sense that we have the Holy Spirit. We can seek to be filled by the Holy Spirit. We can be discerning. Paul, in this moment, has a kind of incisive discernment into the person's spiritual life. I'm not saying that we can, I, I don't think that most of us have this level or capacity of discernment, but we do have a measure of discernment. We can be compassionate. Even though the words are harsh, there's a measure of compassion. He, he's compassionate in that he doesn't want this man to be twisting things. And it's possible also for us to be clear and to be bold and to be confident. So I do think there are ways in which the church can be as bold, as clear, as compassionate, as discerning, as filled by the Spirit as Paul is. But there are other ways that we are not like Paul. And it's, I think it's important that we make this distinction. The Apostle Paul was an apostle. That is one of the ones who was called specifically to record God's word in the New Testament as God's word. So he's speaking with this kind of authority. There in, in Ephesians 4, for those of you who are not really familiar with the concept of apostleship, and at the end of uh, Ephesians 3, it speaks of the church being built with the cornerstone of Christ and with the foundation on the apostles and the prophets. And the role of the apostles, like the role of the, the prophets in the Old Testament, was to record the word of God for us to build our faith upon it. And so what we're called to do is not to try to speak with this kind of apostolic authority, but to build our faith on the apostolic authority that we have in the word of God. Part of what Luke is doing is raising up the apostle Paul, who has written so much of the New Testament to, to show the authority that God had given him in his life. These apostles in Ephesians 4.11 speaks of uh, that God has given, that God is, uh, that, that Jesus ascended on high and then he descended and he distributed gifts. And it mentions five different gifts that he distributed. And one of them is the gift of apostleship. And I want to make a distinction between today, between what you might call the gift of apostleship, which is the missionary gift to care for the churches and to plant churches and the office of the apostle, which is what Paul has, what Peter and James and John had as well. 
So while the gift of apostleship may continue today, the office of apostleship does not. So I just, I'm, I'm saying this because we live in a culture today in which uh, many Christians speak in ways that are not sensitive, that do not conform to the, to the person of Christ, and try to model the authority of those who have the apostolic office. So, brothers and sisters, God has given us a great mission that is before us. And he has called us to be filled by the Spirit and committed to the Word and the geographic expansion of the gospel throughout the city of Chicago. But he also is so realistic to show us that challenges and distractions and some acceptance of the gospel will come. And our calling is to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To have this kind of discernment that the, that the, the Apostle Paul and, and Barnabas and John Mark have. Which is to know the movement of God in our lives. I want to just challenge you, brothers and sisters, to commit to this expansion of God's word. Commit to... And expect the opposition to God's word that is going to come, but to be faithful in the adventure of the New Testament. Uh, I opened with Poppleton because of his simple love for adventure. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks a little bit about, I don't think that's ever happened before Poppleton and Bonhoeffer mentioned in the same sentence. But Bonhoeffer talks about that when we read the, the word of God, we're not merely reading about an adventure. We're actually called to enter into the adventure as well. So I call you to enter the adventure that's sometimes slow, that sometimes is exciting, but to say with the Apostle Paul that this is the adventure that God has called us to. I'm going to close with one statement from uh, Charles Spurgeon on the word of God. And the power of the word of God when it is accompanied by the spirit. He says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Let's bow our heads in prayer, brothers and sisters. Our father in heaven, we thank you for this great adventure that we read about here today. And the realism of opposition to the gospel the realism of distraction from the gospel, but also the beautiful power of the authority of your word as written in the prophets and as written in the apostles. And we pray, Lord, that I pray for brothers and sisters scattered throughout Chicago now who are listening and ask that you build them up. We ask that we could return together to gather in person in your time for those with COVID, Lord, we pray that you'd protect them. We are weak and frail and helpless in the storm. Surround us with your angels and hold us in your arms. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.